be reading from John 1 this morning, starting in verses 1 through 5, and then we're going to bounce to 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I am super excited to start a new series with you this morning, and I'm super excited that it's an expository series, so we know what's coming up next week. And I was reminded this morning during our prayer time over here pre-service that as we've begun different series over the life of the church, and even done so since being here downtown, each series we kind of look forward to, we're going to talk about these things because we think God is leading us now to talk about these specific things. But we're always surprised by what God ends up doing by a series and how formative it is, not just in an individual here or there, but collectively as a bigger family. Some of the things that God does as we just faithfully go through his word and look at every word and understand it and apply it and help each other then live it out in our lives. And John is filled with stuff like that where it's exciting, it's amazing, incredible stories, incredible words of Jesus. And I just pause to say... It's in these opening verses. The adversary has zero chance of actually winning at his resistance program to the light. So may God be glorified in this time, and may we learn and further follow him. I'm going to do two things this morning. So since we're starting a new book, I'm going to take a few minutes to overview the book. And so we, we look at something that we come to its literature and you come to it the way you would come to something maybe scientifically with just the basic questions of like who, what, when, where, why is this being written as best as we can understand? And then we're going to take the second portion of the service to jump into these first five verses and just mention verse 14. So who, what, when, where, why? Who? Your heading, if you have a Bible open or an app open to your Bible, probably says something like the gospel according to John. And it's said that for nearly 2,000 years. That little superscription has traveled along with this gospel for all these years. And tradition tells us that the John that's spoken of here, because there are different Johns in the Bible even, but the John that's spoken of here, the John that authored this letter, is likely John the son of Zebedee who was a Galilean fisherman and the brother of James. When we're trying to figure out who wrote something and when did they write it and where did they write it and why did they write it, there there are two kinds of evidence that textual critics will look at. One is called internal evidence. We're literally looking into the text and saying, what does the text claim for itself or what does the text show us? Then external evidence is like, what else can we gather from the context and the world around this as it was written? A very interesting thing about the internal evidence of John writing this book, and different from the other three Gospels, is that John is never named in the Gospel of John. And that's a fascinating omission that you have to wrestle with, because John was not only one of the 12 disciples, he was, by all accounts, in the inner circle of three. And the other three Gospels often mention this 
trifecta of Peter, James, and John, that there are multiple times where Jesus takes the three and just the three of them aside, for example, to the Mount of Transfiguration when he reveals his pre-fleshly glory. And John's there, but John makes no mention of himself. And, and you can just think, like, when you're telling a story about something, and very often I'm like, oh, my kids went and did this. You know, last year on spring break, we went here, and, and she did this, and he did this, and uh, Marty did this. And I'm not like, and, and Matt also did this, right? Because you're, you're not talking about yourself that way. You're just telling things as you saw them. And one of the best explanations and most reasonable explanations for the omission of John in the book of John is that he's simply telling you, this is what I saw and this is what I heard, and I'm not going to reference myself throughout. Um, There's another internal clue in this book. There are five references in the Gospel of John to the disciple whom Jesus loved, or if you're reading like the old King James, the beloved disciple. And if you're like, well, who was the beloved disciple? Well, we know from chapter 21, verse 24, he says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. So we're like, okay, whoever the disciple whom Jesus loves is, is the guy who wrote this letter. And as we look at external evidence and another gospel says like, hey, at the last supper, for example, here's John seated next to Jesus reclining on his chest as they're working through the Passover meal and the grief together. As I said, he was part of this inner circle. Another piece of external evidence is that it was the nearly unanimous opinion of the early church that John, the son of Zebedee, was the author. And that's important because you go back to an unbroken chain of people who knew John, the son of Zebedee. And they're passing on to their children and the next generation and the next generation and the next generation and so on. They're saying, John, the son of Zebedee, is the guy that wrote this. Okay, so what is it that he wrote? Okay, we're looking at one of the four gospels the Bible calls them. A gospel, a couple important things to note about a gospel. One is that it is a historic narrative of the life of Jesus of Nazareth or the life of Jesus the Christ. But the word gospel itself, euangelion, is good news. So it is not simply a historic narrative. It is presented in such a way that you hear good news through the stories and through the teachings that are being presented, specifically good news that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the Savior of the world. This is the good news that the Gospels bring to us. When? When was this written? Again, we go to internal evidence. We say, what kind of vocabulary is here? What kind of stylistic language is included Uh, When was that popular? When did people write like that? And then we go to external evidence and we think like, okay, what was going on in the culture and the world that John writes about? What was also going on that he does not write about? And what does that leave you to conclude? So most theologians will say that have studied this much deeper than I am that um, the gospel of John was probably written between about the years 80 and 100, likely around the year 90. But it does not mention, incredibly, the fall of Jerusalem when the temple is torn down and burned. And most people will say the reason it's not included is it was written so far after the fact that it doesn't reference that far back. And it was written to a different culture that the sacking of Jerusalem was not as critically important to their history, which leads us to the where question. And again, tradition tells us John wrote this in the city of Ephesus. John, actually, after Rome attacked Jerusalem and burned it, 
and killed a ton of Jews, and there's this diaspora, there's this scattering of Jews around the world, tradition tells us that John went to Ephesus somewhere around this time, and there's actually a community there in Ephesus that bore his name, the Johannine community, and this is where John lived out the balance of his life and continued teaching about what he had personally witnessed of the person and work of Jesus there. Then kind of last introductory question is why? Why, why a fourth gospel? Why John's gospel? And if you were to turn ahead to the second to last chapter of the gospel of John, he tells you. He says this in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So we don't have to go wrestling through, oh, what was John trying to say here? What was his purpose? What was his overall intent? Because he tells you. He says, I want people to receive life, eternal and abundant life, in Jesus' name by knowing who he was, and I'm going to present him in a way that you know exactly who he was and proved himself to be so that you can trust him with your life and receive this eternal, forever, abundant life. Let me also make this point just by way of introduction. I've just made reference to the fact there are three other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And those Gospels are referred to as synoptic Gospels. Some of you may have heard that term. Um, synoptic literally means seeing all together. And the idea of the synoptic Gospels is, while Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written by three different authors at three different times with three different angles or perspectives... They present similar events and similar teachings of Jesus in a similar order, chronologically. And so it's not difficult to pick up Matthew, Mark, and Luke and kind of harmonize them and realize they're not contradictory. They're just simply telling the same event from three different perspectives. And that's, that's actually what you would expect if you have three different eyewitnesses or two eyewitnesses and then Luke who researched it after the fact and was perhaps an eyewitness of some of this. You know, if you're all at the same rally or the same sporting event and you're, you know, years later sharing with someone else what it is that you saw at the end of that game, there would be overlap in your stories. Michigan won. They're national champions. But your, your unique perspective of that and exactly how that went down would be a little different because you're not just copying and pasting from one another. You're telling your perspective of what happened. Okay, so the Synoptic Gospel, similar story, similar order. John is a very different gospel. It is not a Synoptic Gospel. John comes with different emphases. He tells different stories. For example, some, some of the best-known stories of Jesus, like him turning water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana, only John tells us that story. Jesus' long conversation with Nicodemus in the middle of the night where we find the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, only in the Gospel of John. The, the conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, only in the Gospel of John. The raising of Lazarus from the dead, only in the Gospel of John. In a similar vein, many of the teachings of Jesus and some of the prayers of Jesus are only contained in the Gospel of John, like his discussion on the new birth, his discussion at length with the disciples about the nature and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, only in the Gospel of John. So it's very important that we study this Gospel and know it. 
now going back to the very beginning, and you may know this from memory, but I'll, I'll tell you, Matthew and Luke begin their gospels with two things, basically, genealogies, that is your family history, and the nativity narratives or the birth narratives of Jesus. So they go back and they're making this point that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of Israel because he is related to King David by birth through both parents, actually. So Jesus can rightfully sit on the throne of David and be king over Israel if God so chooses because he has this lineage that goes back to David. And then you have these birth narratives about, you know, the angels come to Mary and say, Mary, you found favor with God. You're going to bear this child by the Spirit, and you're going to call his name Jesus, and he is the Son of God. And Mark is interesting because he skips all that birth narrative stuff, and he just jumps into the story. And he's like, Jesus was an adult, and he showed up and got baptized, and he's off and running. And Mark is sometimes called the go gospel because Mark's just like, and immediately Jesus did this. And then immediately he's over here and immediately he's off doing this other thing. And just bam, 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 bam. These quick stories of Jesus' life. But you'll notice, where does John begin? As he doesn't just go back to the lineage of David. He doesn't just go back to the beginning of Jesus, so to speak, as a baby. He starts his gospel with the same three words that start the Bible. Okay, Genesis 1 starts, in the beginning, God. John starts his gospel, in the beginning, was the Word. And I'll, I'll give you a spoiler alert, if you haven't caught this already, the Word is Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus the Christ. And John wants to show us five things about Jesus, or five things about the Word in these opening verses. I'm going to give you five. I'm actually going to talk only about four pretty much this morning. So John's going to show us the words personality, the words preeminence, the words purpose, the words power, and the words presence. And again, we'll talk mostly about presence next week and the following week. So let's begin with the words personality. What do I, what do I mean by that? Well, what I want you to know, first of all, is, and I love this stuff, so sorry if, sorry if this doesn't get you excited. I am. The cultural context into which John is breathing this gospel is really incredible because centuries before John wrote this, both the Jewish culture and the Gentile or Greek culture had this concept of the Word of God. Now, let me differentiate. The, the, the Jews were incredibly familiar with the Word of God because that phrase occurs 259 times in the Old Testament. Sometimes God spoke through an actual voice. Sometimes God spoke through dreams or visions. Sometimes God spoke through a prophet. Sometimes he spoke through a donkey. Sometimes his word was oral. Sometimes his word was written. But all the Jews knew what the word of the Lord was. And to just summarize, the Jews understood the word, or it's the Greek word logos. They understand the logos is the power and the self-revelation of God, particularly around creation and salvation. So God speaks and things are made, or God speaks and things are remade. By the way, you, one of the things that we have to notice about John 1, verse 1, is that it's alluding to Genesis 1, verse 1. Again, Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How? Like, do you know what Genesis 1 says? How did God create the heavens and the earth? 
The Bible says, and God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be this expanse. God said, let there be dry land. God said, God simply spoke. So God is creating through his word, or we could say the word is God's agent of creation. The Jews knew this. Psalm 33, verse 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Or Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. I, I mentioned before that judgment and salvation also came through the word of God. So as the Jews are languishing in slavery and poverty and brokenness, all these different epochs of their history, they know if the word of the Lord appears, there will be punishment, there will be discipline for idolaters and rebels, but there will be salvation for people of faith, people who live by their faith, which the Bible refers to as the righteous. So when John begins to write, in the beginning was the word. If you just stop there, all the Jews are like, that's right. That's right. In the beginning was the word of God. And the Jews would have agreed. And they would be thinking in terms of his creative power expressed in words like, let there be light. Now, the Greeks, on the other hand, let me just go there for a moment. They did not refer to it as the word of God. They referred to it as the logos, which is the Greek word here. And the Greeks understood the logos to be the abstract force that brought order and purpose and design and harmony to their world. So Greek philosophers are looking at their world and they're saying, isn't this interesting that there's a mix of complete randomness and brokenness and entropy, but there's also this seeming design, like a creative order to things. There seems to be a telos, which is a purpose to this. There seems to be a trajectory one writer puts it this way, the logos was the principle that held everything together in a world of change. There is a purpose and design to the world and events, and this is the logos or the logos. By the way, the famous Greek philosopher Plato, the Athenian philosopher, wrote 400 years before John, quote, it may be that someday there will come forth from God a word, a logos, who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. Isn't that interesting? That one of the preeminent Greek philosophers says, I'll bet one day this abstract force, this impersonal whatever that is, is going to somehow come and make sense of everything. And now John writes, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the logos. Now, if I'm summarizing, so the Jews for thousands of years are thinking, when the word comes, we will see his redemption, we'll see his salvation. The Greeks are thinking, when the word comes, we'll understand purpose and design in an abstract way. And John, by contrast, says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That's why this first point is the word's personality. Because John is saying over and over again, notice the logos or the word is personal. He's not an abstraction. He's not merely a force that works out there somehow. Neither is he simply a spoken word of God. He says he's a he. And he was with God and he is God. 
and he became flesh and he lived among us and we saw him and we saw his glory and we touched him and ate with him and spoke with him and knew him. So the word is personal. And both the Jews and the Greeks are stepping back like, okay, okay, John, you got our attention. You're connecting to something we understand, but you're putting a different spin on it. Now prove your point with the rest of your gospel. That's the word's personality. Secondly, the word's preeminence, I said. Notice verse three, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And John's point here is simply this word, whoever he is, and I'm gonna introduce him, he is creator of everything. Therefore, he's the rightful owner of everything. And, And by the way, the Jews would readily agree, yes, God made everything. God made everything. But John, notice what he does. Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God created. John substitutes the word. In the beginning, the word. He puts the word where the Jews would expect to read God. And he's saying the word is the agent of creation. And this is critically important when you remember that John is introducing Jesus. And he's saying whatever Jesus is about to do in this gospel, don't forget his preeminence as creator. I mean, my goodness, what's his first miracle? What's Jesus' first miracle? Only John tells us he turned water into wine at a wedding, which right there he's saying, I'm creator. I do this all the time. I do it every year, every season. Those vines that have nothing on them, all of a sudden these buds appear and then these flowers appear and then those flowers are pollinated, this fruit appears and and water gets pumped into those little berries and you've got grapes and you mash that down with the yeasts and the sugars and all that going on and Boom, I do wine every year. This is no big deal for the creator. So John is going to prove his point, but he's saying, as you read every story going through this gospel, remember, Jesus is preeminent over your life, over our culture, our world, the kingdoms of this world, because without him, nothing is here. Colossians bears this out, verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. says, by him, Jesus All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him everything holds together. Or Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2 says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So the first way we see the preeminence of Jesus is he made everything, it all belongs to him. The second way we see it is why I wanted you to jump to verse 14 for just a moment, because John says he's he's the one and only son of God. So verse 14, we have seen his glory, the word's glory, glory as of the only son from the father, And John's point here is simple. He uses a word, monogamous, that means unique or one and only. And all he's saying is Jesus is not a son of God, which many false religions teach. Oh, yeah, he's a son of God, and you can be a son of God too. That's not what John's saying. He's saying very clearly, no, 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 he is not a son of God. He is the son of God, the unique son of God, the eternal son of God who had no beginning. He's the one and only. So again, whatever you read about Jesus as we go through this gospel, just remember, he's the one and only. He's he's better and different than everyone else, quantitatively, 
qualitatively as well. Thirdly, what is the word's purpose? This is what John wants us to know right out of the gate. Verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John says the purpose of the word is to come and to give life. Now, that's interesting because with a name like word, you could conclude if you didn't know this, you'd be like, oh, I know why the word came because he's going to give more instructions from God or more information. Like, that's what a word does. And John's like, no, no, in a way, yes, he's coming to give instructions. But more importantly, he's coming to give life. John 3.16 says the gift is eternal life. John 10.10 says it's abundant life. And by the way, notice this life isn't just a gift that he brings from someone else. You know, Jesus is not the Amazon delivery driver of life. And he's like, I don't know, you ordered life. Here's the delivery. He says, in him was life. And just a quick analogy This means that that Jesus gives us life more like I gave my boys red hair than me giving them a new hockey stick or giving them a haircut, right? Because there's a sense in which like red hairness was in me and I give that to them. Now, I don't want to press that analogy to the end of everything and make it weird, but it's just saying The life was in Jesus. He is life, and that's how he gives it. It's not something separate from him that he's like, okay, here you go. Here's your your hockey stick. He's saying it's in me, and as you connect to me in faith and abide in me, this eternal, abundant life becomes yours. By the way, remember John's goal that he says at the very end of the book, that you may have life. Why am I writing this? That you may have life in Jesus' name. So he came to give life, but secondly, he came to shine light in the darkness. And the world that Jesus stepped into was very dark, but he was and he is the light. Again, he's not bringing the light. He is the light, which he'll say later at one of the major feasts or festivals of Israel. And notice again the reference to Genesis 1, because in the beginning, God said, let there be light. In the beginning, the word comes and does what? He shines the light. And I want you to just think about that for a moment. Jesus comes as the light in order to reveal someone. So he's coming and he's shining the spotlight and saying, you you want to know the Father as he really is? You want to know God? Then you can't just read a book. I'm coming to reveal God. I'm coming to show you who he is, what he is like, how much he loves you, what great things he has done for you. I'm revealing something. Secondly, Jesus comes as a light to expose and to correct something. So he's constantly going to be rubbing people the wrong way because he's shining this light on their perverse self-righteousness and their rebellion and their idolatry, just saying, this stuff is crushing you. Look at this. Turn and find hope and find satisfaction for your soul. That's what the light is doing. Jesus comes as a light in order to guide someone. He's like walking this path and he's like, come with me. Like, in my life, there is light. You can see the will of God, the purposes of God. You know where God wants you to go. You know what God wants you to do. I've come as the light so that I can guide you and help you. Finally, I'll just say he he came as the light in order to generate life. Going back to the grape thing, you know, those, those grapes do not grow if it's just ever dark. But that light comes, and that photosynthesis comes, and that process starts working and the sugars do their thing, and it 
grows and it flourishes. And I think we would say, as we look at the stories of Jesus throughout the Gospel of John, over and over, generating life, producing the kind of human flourishing that we were designed to experience. Fourthly, the words power. This one's very short, but just look at verse 5. The, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And that word overcome, John uses a very interesting word that means grasp. He says, the light comes, the light shines, the darkness can't grasp the light. And writers on this verse are very split. They're like, okay, we think it means like they can't grasp it intellectually. Like they, they can't understand the light. And other people are like, no, no, no. They mean they can't literally grasp like to control him or to overpower him. I would put myself in this second camp for a couple reasons. One, John says the light has come. Like he's coming to reveal God. So you could be walking in darkness. We all were apart from the light. But God doesn't come and say, you're, you're never going to understand me. You're not going to be able to grasp me. He's actually doing the opposite. He's saying, let me make what is maybe ethereal and abstract to you. Let me make it concrete. I want to reveal the Father to you so that you know him. Not so you're like, oh, we could never grasp that intellectually. But as we wade through this book, you're going to find that John, even more than the other Gospels, are constantly going to be showing you miracle after miracle, teaching after teaching, that the, the religious authorities in particular are just butting up against Jesus. And they're like, we hate you. We despise you. We, we say you're a false Messiah. We're going to kill you. And eventually they do. And I think John's point right out of the gate is this word has power like you guys will not believe because he's gonna shine in the darkness and the darkness is gonna oppose him, but the darkness cannot ultimately overcome him. So he's saying, you don't have to wait to the end of the story like Star Wars and be like, oh, there's this dualistic thing. It's light versus darkness and they're equal powers and you really don't know who's gonna win until the very end. So I guess we could trust in Jesus and hope that we're right. He's like, no, no, no. The darkness will never overpower the light that comes through Jesus. So when you fix your hope in Jesus, you know you're with the winning team. Jesus wins. Jesus overcomes. That's his power. And that brings us to this final thing in verse 14, which again, I just, I just want to reference it. Then we'll come back and unpack this because there's, there's way more than we can get to this morning. But verse 14 again, and I want to jump there because this is the only other place that John explicitly refers to the word or the logos. And here he says, that word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that's why this last point I just want to touch on is the word's presence. The word's presence. Because what John wants you to see is that word who eternally existed as God. John says he was with God and he was God. That word who created everything and without him nothing was made. That word who is life and light came. And it's the doctrine of the incarnation that he took on human flesh and human blood so as John says here, people could touch him, they could observe him, they could see in him the glory of God finally revealed. And I just want to close with four encouraging, because that, that, that's a lot. We're taking in both an overview this morning and then this amazing prologue, which 
you know, the reason it's easy to stumble over when you read it is because it's, it's poetic, and it's like, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and he made things, and it's just like all these parallels. It's actually a double chiasm, which is fascinating. Go back and map it out. If you know what a chiasm is, you'll see it. It's really cool, but it's hard to read out loud, okay? So how does this leave you encouraged? Let me give you four things to take away this morning. Number one, as you read through this book, note the words and deeds of Jesus are the words and deeds of God. And that's John's first and primary point. As you go through and you read about the word, you read about the logos, and that name's not going to be used again, but now you're going to be reading about Jesus of Nazareth. You're going to be reading about one that his disciples call him Rabbi and Lord. John's going to confess, you are the son of God. And that's his point. Every single word, every single deed is the words and actions of God. So our response as we go through this book, we're like, man, if, if, if everything Jesus says and does is the activity of God, may I have the, the trust to believe these words and to obey you because you're God. Secondly, John wants you to know that God wants to be known and that he can be known. And the reason he chooses something like word is he's saying, again, God is not simply sending more information, more instruction, more rules, more advice. He is personally coming and saying, let me show you God. How, How much more could we convince you that God desires to be known and can be known by knowing the person and work of Jesus. And I respond to that by saying, if, if you've come to reveal God, then I wanna learn everything about you that I can. And not just intellectually, but God, would you move my heart as we go through this series? So I'm not just grasping you here and thinking like, wow, what a, what a really neat tidbit of knowledge. But my, my soul is moved and it's like, I, I know you more intimately. I trust you more deeply with my life. Thank you for making yourself known. Thirdly, encouragement. Jesus is the fulfillment of our deepest longings, and he's even better than we imagine. Where am I getting that from? Well, again, the the contextual background is that the Jews knew what the word of God is, the Gentiles knew what the logos was, and they both had expectations. They're like, this is going to be great, because when after 400 years of silence, God finally speaks, it's going to be salvation. And you know what? The Jews were right. When God speaks after 400 years, it is salvation, but it's personal salvation of Jesus coming in the flesh and living the way we should have and dying on a cross to bury our sin and to bring eternal life. So it is salvation, but it's better than they expected. And this Logos, they're like, man, when the Logos, if it ever comes, we'll know purpose and order and we'll know the design for things. And Jesus shows up and is like, here's the purpose and order and design for things. That's better. And I want you to just think, like, you, you don't always have to just suppress and be like, and I have these dreams for, like, pleasure and relationship and affirmation and hope and, and these good things, but, but not look to earthly things to say that's the ultimate expression of that, but say, Jesus, you've planted certain hopes and expectations in my heart because I believe you are the fulfillment, you are the all-satisfying one, And the way you go about it is better than I could ever imagine. It's just going to be really, really good. And then finally, from these opening verses, Jesus reveals the depth of our need and the depth of God's love. What do I mean? I mean, our need was so great. God's like, 
I can't just give you more instructions. We're, we're done with instructions in the sense of if you keep the law, you can be saved. Jesus says, your need is so great, I must physically come to you and be present in your midst and do for you what you've all failed to do. That's the depth of our need, but that's the depth of God's love. Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's love because he's like, I will come. And you know how bad your day-to-day experience is just with physical pain, cuts and bruises, surgeries, diseases, sickness, frustrating stuff in culture around you, broken relationships. Jesus goes through all of that and then goes to a cross and lays down his life. And he's like, do you not see how greatly loved you are that I will stop at nothing to bring you home forever? So these are the opening verses of John. May we know this word. May we experience his life and his light.